Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. From the biggest income tax cuts since the 1990s to zoning reform and a look at affordable housing, we talk to local legislators Kathy Austin and Greg Howard about the winners and losers in the 2023 legislative session. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Another year and another legislative session is over. So who were the winners and losers this time round and what bills got passed and which ones failed? And what were the hot-button issues that were fiercely debated? I caught up with two local legislators, Democratic State Senator Kathy Austin of the 19th District and Republican State Representative Greg Howard of the 43rd District to get their thoughts and reactions to this year's legislative session. To you both, thank you for joining us and coming back onto Connecticut East this week. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning, Brian. So the 2023 Connecticut legislative session obviously wrapped up a little while ago. We wanted to, and we tried to do a little catch up with you both because we love talking to you. You're both in our area. Kathy, I'm going to turn to you first. You know, wins in this legislative session. The taxpayers actually got quite a big win with some of the first reductions in income tax rates since the 1990s. That's true. That's really true. That's something that we worked a lot on. Another piece of the tax break that we worked on also was on pensions and annuities across the board to make sure that there isn't what we call a cliff or a drop-off after a single person achieves 75000 So we put more of a slide in and we plan on working on that in the future. The ultimate goal is to have no income tax on any pension or annuity. And the other thing as well is understand there's some tax breaks in the budget for earned income tax relief for, for low-earning working families as well, which you know will come as a relief to them because with the greatest of respect, Connecticut is a great state but it's not a cheap one to live in. No, it's not cheap to live in. And I think we're in the top 10 in states relative to the earned income tax credit now. And Greg, any thoughts as well on obviously this income tax reduction, as I say, first since the 1990s? I mean, it was touted as quite a major deal. Big deal. Huge bipartisan deal. I think the biggest takeaway on the budget for me was that we had a reduction in taxes that, you know, over 60% of our residents saw and a balanced budget. So, you know, is it is it perfect by every, every individual's measure? No, nope. I don't think there's a single person that thought it was perfect, but that's how government works. And at the end of the day, we delivered a budget to the to the state of Connecticut that was balanced and reduced taxes. And, and that's something I think that uh, we can all be proud of, both branches. Let's talk about some other wins as well, obviously, during the legislative session. Gun regulation advocates or an update to Connecticut's gun laws over the objections of Second Amendment advocates. It was a, a big bill, I believe a 100 
248 page bill. Greg, I'm going to turn to you first about this, because obviously, as a current serving police officer here in the state, clearly guns are always of concern to you and to the law enforcement. Talk to us a little bit about this gun regulation. One of the good parts of the gun bill that I think is not well talked about is we, to some degree, not the degree I would have liked, we tightened up the enforcement of perpetrators of gun violence. And I think that that's something that's been largely overlooked. I think, you know, the the banning of open carry is not worth arguing about. I don't think it's necessary for folks to open carry. I didn't have a big issue with that. But I did take issue with the limitation, I mean, of, of the amount of firearms you can purchase in a month. And isn't to say that I think people need to go stockpiling weapons or anything, but the bottom line is the state of Connecticut has one of the most, if not the most robust process in the country for individuals' ability to purchase even a round of ammunition, much less a firearm. And I think once an individual has proven through that robust process that they are responsible enough to own firearms, that restricting the amount that they can buy is an overstep. And certainly when we have rights, and I think it's important to remember that individuals in the state of Connecticut under our constitution have a right to possess firearms for self-defense. It says so in the state constitution. When you start regulating rights, and certainly we have to do that with firearms, we can't have convicted felons or, or people with known mental illnesses that are dangerous uh, having firearms, you really have to draw a line in the sand as to how far you can let that regulation go. And to me, that that went over that line. That was a major issue. And, and frankly, uh, Brian, I think we, we do need to be a lot more serious about combating the actual criminals who perpetrate these gun crimes. And it remains to be frustrating to me when I have some of my colleagues who will tell additional gun laws, but then will resist efforts to be more punitive on those who violate them. So I actually agree with Greg relative to the point that I have been pushing every year that we have done additional gun regulations or restrictions to make sure that we were holding people accountable that were committing crimes over and over again and not having any consequence to that crime. As a matter of fact, often in a plea bargain deal, their gun charges were eliminated. And so I think that um, holding them accountable, those that are in neighborhoods, making those neighborhoods uninhabitable, making those neighborhoods unsafe, and making those neighborhoods feel as if nobody is listening to them has been a problem. And this time, that law did deal with that particular issue. And that was one thing that I'm happy to see. Let's move on to another win as well. Baby bonds finally uh, came to fruition. A deal struck between Governor Lamont and obviously our new state treasurer, Eric Russell. Kathy, talk to us a little bit about this, because this is actually really good news. And I believe it's one of the first possibly in the nation as well. It is the first in the nation and it is good news. And it will actually impact not just those in urban areas. It will impact many sections of eastern Connecticut where poverty exists. So I, I was in favor of this. We have the capacity to afford it not only today, but in the future. And I am excited that we are in many ways breaking that uh, generational poverty. Greg, I want to turn to you on another issue. Road safety, um, obviously, as a member of law enforcement, I mean, it's it's part of the overall thing that obviously our law enforcement agencies do here. What do you think about, you know, what came out of this uh, road safety spill? Because obviously the legislation allowed automated traffic enforcement cameras as part of a wide range because obviously we've seen over the last couple of years you know sadly some of the deadliest last couple of years in the state for road incidents yeah so you're right 2022 had the deadliest year on our, our Connecticut highways sadly enough and including obviously we lost one of our colleagues 
to a traffic crash. You know, Brian, that was a bill that many of my Republican colleagues were opposed to because they thought as, you know, big government overreach. And I just disagree. At the end of the day, we create traffic laws in this state, whether it's speeding or don't follow too close or no distracted driving, no drunk driving, those sort of things for the safety of our highways. But all of those laws need enforcement. Without enforcement, there become suggestions, quite frankly. What we've seen in, in Connecticut just last year, as an example, a, a reduction in traffic stops, say, just by the Connecticut State Police, from an average of two to two, 225,000 a year in the, in the eight years leading up to 2021 and 2022, down to 75,000 a year. And that's post-pandemic. You know, certainly carve out the pandemic, troopers weren't stopping cars or less cars on the road, et cetera. But post-pandemic, we, we saw this significant reduction. And there's a lot of reasons for that, not the least of which is that our state police numbers are, are as low as they've been. And what I have said and will continue to say is these traffic cameras will, at the very least, reduce traffic crashes in the areas where they are, right? Because the average commuter, first off, you know, if you read the law, it has to be posted well ahead. And the average commuter is going to say, okay, I have to slow down. I have to abide by this red light in this particular area. And then they'll be back to their normal things. But so is it, is it, a, is it the, the fix? No. But is it a fix? For sure. So it's something that I supported. That's the argument that I made in the floor. It's the argument I'll continue to make against those who oppose it. And quite frankly, if you don't want to get caught on a traffic cam, just obey the speed limit. It's very simple. Let's talk about voting as well. Connecticut joined 46 other states this session and offering an in-person early voting option that'll begin next year. Kathy, talk to us about that because it is important. People, you know, have been calling for this for a while. 60% of the people who voted in the state of Connecticut in the last election wanted to see early voting. It is overwhelmingly popular. People want to be able to have choice in when they vote and they want to feel that they're not obligated to go just one day a year. We also enacted no excuse absentee balloting to be voted on in the next state election. So next year we'll be voting on that. We also funded early voting in the budget this year and put in a stipend for every municipality to cover the costs of early voting. And so it took away and it should take away all of the concerns that people may or may not have relative to the cost. And Connecticut is by far one of the safest places to vote in this country. And uh, the more opportunities that people have to vote, the better off we are as a state. And Greg, turning to you, and obviously this is the same for Kathy as well. Both of you, of course, rely on voters, you know, when you come up for re-election. And sometimes it can be a little bit of a crush because people are trying to get their fine time in their day, etc. So, I mean, I'm guessing you're also pleased with this as well, Greg? Yes, I voted for that as well. One thing that the senator didn't mention that was a that amendment at the end that really changed things for me it is in its original form, there was early voting for every referendum. And my concern that I brought to, to that committee was I don't want to discourage municipalities from sending things to referendum because of a cost. And as Senator Austin said, the cost of early voting is borne by the state and not on the municipal budgets. But, but that was amended out. So your regular referendums, you won't have that sort of early voting, which would be a burden to municipalities. And it goes right to, I think, what your point is. And the reason I felt that way is because I wanted the people of a town or in our case, a district or the state of Connecticut in general to always have an opportunity for a say whenever it's reasonable. Certainly, we can't have people voting on every single bill, right? That's how our government is set up. But I do think it is important. And I think that the early voting as it ended up as amended was something that I could support. I would have liked to have seen 10 days. I think 10 days covered it. You know, the Secretary of State agreed with me that it was 10 days. But listen, you know, 14 days, 10 days. I'm not going to die on that hill. The, the opportunity for everybody to cast their vote is important. And to your point about I rely on voters, given the choice of having everybody vote and lose, 
lose or having just enough people vote and me win, I'd rather have everybody vote and lose. Because I think that that's how our government system should be set up. Everybody should have the opportunity to have a say. I hope everybody shows up to vote and then truly the district elects who they think is best. Well, hopefully this will give those people a little bit more incentive now that you guys have passed that. Let's look at some losses as well. Nonprofits didn't do, unfortunately, particularly well in this legislative session. Biennial budget included only a two and a half percent increase for nonprofit service providers in the state, which was significantly less than the nine percent bump that the Connecticut Community Nonprofit Alliance wanted. Kathy, talk to us about that. Nonprofits broadly got a 2.6% increase with um, $53 million that was put in the budget both in year one and year two. We also put an additional $50 million in year one and year two for those nonprofits related to the Department of Developmental Services. That is a 4.6% increase for those 800, almost 900 group homes and workers that work in those group homes. And I worked with our leadership to see if we could share that $50 million broadly with all nonprofits. Ultimately, the decision was made not to have that happen. That doesn't mean that the work Work doesn't continue. So those nonprofits in uh, developmental services are at seven plus percent, very close to what the alliance was asking for. And the other nonprofits that are within the nine other state agencies got 2.6 percent. Representative Walker and I are working on a possible law this upcoming year, putting up in a bill that would require that funding for Human and social services agencies relative to nonprofits will all receive the same funding. Because what happens is, for example, one of our larger nonprofits, Oak Hill, services both developmental disabilities, clients, and those in mental health. And they'll have a worker that is eligible for some of the funding, which is not all dedicated to wages, but is dedicated to running the business. Over 7% for those with developmental services. Those with mental health are working within the confines of 2.6%. So there is more work to be done. I sponsored bills over the last five years to fix the funding for nonprofits and have committed myself. Uh, This is one of my number one issues. When we transferred from state services into private nonprofits, the only funding that is used for these private nonprofits is state and federal funding. So we have to make sure that we're supporting them to provide the best services for the most needy of our residents. And that's something that I I will continue to do. There's actually a report that will come out in September from the Office of Policy and Management and Representative Walker and I plan on holding an informational hearing on that report. And let's talk about zoning reform as well. That was another hot button issue. The legislator decided to approve a study on affordable housing, but decided not to support a bill that uh, would seek to have given the state more control over towns and municipalities. It's not a complete failure because there was, of course, I believe about 600 million announced by Governor Lamont in bonding for affordable housing. But just talk to us a little bit about that as well, because, you know, some people were obviously disappointed. And of course, it's that age old question of, you know, I don't want this in my backyard. But the problem is people need to live somewhere. 
I think we need a first before, but and the governor had six hundred million in the budget from day one. His plan was always to put money towards affordable housing, and I would like to first have them define what affordable housing means. So in Greenwich, for example, an affordable housing unit in Greenwich is over a million dollars a year. To me, that is not a definition of affordable housing. The town of Marlboro, one of the towns in my district, is has approved two housing environments to be built over the next year or so. One, some apartments and one, uh, condos. Now, the condos at market rate are over 500, almost $550,000. The affordable component of that is over $300,000. Again, that is not affordable. And we have to address what truly we mean by affordable. In addition, I've been pushing for the state to recognize that in order to build multifamily housing, you need to have infrastructure that's water and sewer, and you also need public transportation. Most of Eastern Connecticut does not have an efficient public transportation system, and many of our smaller communities do not have the capacity of water and sewer. And I've also been working both in uh, both Franklin and Basra, received money to expand their sewer capacity, and they're hooking in with City of Norwich. That's important because that allows them to address issues that the state needs to address, but that needs to have a broad look across the base. And we have to make sure that affordable housing is not more expensive for folks than the current housing stock, far less than what we are building. That is just us saying it is not a true addressing uh, of what affordable housing should be. One of the big issues that also came up or something that was highlighted, of course, is this term of redlining that, you know, a lot of people feel that some of the local towns and municipalities are just basically saying no without really giving it any good review. And, and it's something that's that's become historic. It is a mindset at the end of the day as well, isn't it? I mean, exactly what Cathy said. I mean, you do have to have the resources there. You can't just keep plonking houses down willy nilly. And if there aren't resources and services there, then clearly that's no good to anybody. But we do need to possibly change this mindset as well, don't you think? Well, I think we need to take politics out of it. That's the problem. So, you, you know, you, we start saying things like redlining and, and, you know, not in my backyard and, and it becomes a political debate. Got these hit the nail on the head. A legitimate government function is infrastructure. So if you go back to first grade economics, the more supply you have of something, the lower the, the price point is going to be for it. Right. So if you were to, if the government were to stick to its legitimate function and create infrastructure in most of Connecticut where there is none. And by that, I mean water and sewer, because she's exactly right. You can't put a multifamily, you know, a big multifamily housing complex on a septic. It's just not reasonable, right? So if if the government stuck to their legitimate function, then you would have the private entity come in and build homes. You would increase the inventory, therefore decrease the price. So where the pushback came and where the negotiation came in with the whole fair share part of that, that negotiated down to a study, was because many legislators were saying, you know, you can't put a one size fits all on municipalities. It's not about redlining. It's not about not my backyard. But there's a lot of moving parts that go into, you know, the education. You start building things, you know, police services, fire services, you know, public safety, things, the cost that goes up, traffic on the roadways. There's all these ancillary costs. So each municipality is is equipped differently to deal with those. So the state cannot put this one size fits all. And one other thing that the state needs to do when you talk about affordable housing is we need to relook, you know, the senator talked about, uh, you know, redefining what affordable is. I have, you know, multiple homes in my district that are not deed restricted affordable, but you can buy them for $225,000 
220, 219, something like that. That would fit affordable, except they're not deed restricted that, so they don't count either. So we have to have a better conversation about it, Brian, and get serious about saying, listen, we have the electric boat right here in Groton that's going to hire 15,000 people over the next couple of decades, and they need somewhere to live. They're trying to hire engineers right now to build our submarines, and the engineers are willing to take the job at the pay rate, but they can't afford to live here or can't find a place to live, so we don't end up picking them up. You know, that's a problem. And and if if the state wants to get serious about addressing that problem, they should stick to their legitimate function, build the infrastructure and let the private entities come in and do what they do and build those housing complexes and, and, and increase the supply. And I do want to say one quick thing is two or three years ago, CHAFA, uh, the Connecticut Housing Finance Authority, decided that tax credits for affordable housing would not be available in three counties, Thailand, Wyndham and New London. So we are not eligible on a on a broad base to get tax credits, which ultimately limits the amount of housing. And the answer that they gave when uh, we pushed back on that was that they needed more affordable housing in Fairfield County and they had better schools there. That is not acceptable, in my opinion. And uh, that needs to be addressed along with any bill that we pass that's relative to affordable housing. State Senator Kathy Austin and State Representative Greg Howard, as always, it's great talking to you. Thank you for your work in this 2023 legislative session, along with your colleagues. And uh, have yourselves a great summer. And we look forward to, obviously, the session for 2024. Take care. Thank you both. Have a nice day. Bye. And might you be buzzed when you suddenly love everything? You guys, I love this song. I love these nachos. I love our kickball league. I love this guy. What's your name? You know what I'd love? A ride when it's time to head out. If you see a buzzed warning sign, call for a ride when it's time to go home. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. I love your car. Is this real leather? It's hurricane season, and your trees can be damaged by high winds. Green Valley Tree has you covered with our emergency tree service outside of our regular business hours. We offer emergency tree service by bucket, crane, and climbing for residential, commercial, and even municipalities across eastern Connecticut. From full tree removals, uprooted or broken trees, to broken, hung up, or fractured tree limbs. Call our emergency hotline on 860-966-5710 or visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com. Time now for a look at other stories making the headlines this week. Motorists using I-95 around East Lyme began facing delays and detours to their journeys for the next six to eight weeks as the month of August began. The Connecticut Department of Transportation is undertaking a $148 million improvement project to the interchange around Exit 74 on the highway, including rock blasting and replacing a road bridge. Kafi Rouse is the Director of Communications for the Department of Transportation and says they need motorists to pay extra attention when they're in the area. Once the rock blasting starts, we need everyone to follow the detours that are in place. Please see the crews that are out there on the highways telling you which way to go or even to stop you and just follow the signage. So they are all there for everyone's safety. Rouse says the rock blasting will occur twice daily between the hours of 9am and 1.30pm, Monday to Thursday only. The precise blasting times cannot be predicted because of the nature of the work, but motorists can sign up for text alerts at i-95eastlime.com 
giving them a 30-minute warning window for when the next blasting and rolling roadblock will occur. One thing that people can do to plan as best they can is to register to receive daily text messages that will come to their phone. The text messages will go out 30 minutes prior to each blast. That will at least provide them some information. It is good to go ahead and look at alternate routes uh, to get to where you're going uh, in general. Rock blasting will not occur in the evenings or on Fridays or the weekends to avoid higher volumes of traffic and peak commuter times. The Connecticut Agriculture Experiment Station that runs the state's tick and tick-borne disease surveillance program is warning residents about new exotic ticks that are turning up in the state. These new varieties pose a risk to public health as well as to people's pets and the state's farm animals. Dr. Gudas Malai directs the station's tick program and says people travelling internationally are one of the ways the ticks are coming here. They go to some areas that are infested with ticks, particularly areas that are animal sanctuary. They go for parks and horseback riding and all those activities. When they return, ticks hitchhike on them and bring ticks to Connecticut and the United States through our state. Malai says if these ticks get into the local environment, they will become a major problem. All it requires to have a couple of ticks hitchhiking on human travelers released when they are in Connecticut, then they can start their own populations. And because we do not have that harsh winters anymore, that would be a limiting factor for them. They can continue expanding their populations. Malai says in recent weeks they have received at least four live exotic ticks from people returning from places like Europe, Africa and Central and South America. The introduction of these new ticks is concerning as they could bring new diseases and could quickly establish new tick populations and rapid expansion due to an increasingly hospitable environment brought about through climate change and Connecticut's warmer winters. Governor Lamont recently visited the Coast Guard Academy Library in New London to see historic artefacts that will be preserved when the library receives a $1 million grant from the state. The library is part of the Connecticut Library System, and some of the artefacts date back to the 1790s when the Coast Guard was established by Alexander Hamilton. Lamont said the grant was an important investment not only by the state, but on a national level too. You can do it on digital form, you can look at it in the book, but being able to hold it and see it, what that means to this state, what that means to this country, the fact that you're headquartered right here, right here is the academy, means an awful lot. I'm really proud that Connecticut was able to help out in a modest way to make sure this uh, treasured history stays in a good form for the next 200 years. Rear Admiral Michael Johnson is the new superintendent of the Coast Guard Academy and said the artefacts are more than just an important part of their history from our core values and the letters from Hamilton to the experiences that some of our graduates went through in both the Vietnam War and the World War II and their private and personal notes. It's really just an inspiration. And what we do here is collect those stories and we use them to inspire the next generation. The grant will enable the library to modify an entire room to include special environmental conditions from temperature controls to lighting and special racks so the collection of around 6,000 artefacts can be stored in optimal conditions to stop them from deterioration. And State Treasurer Eric Russell, trustee of the Connecticut Higher Education Trust called CHET, has announced the kickoff of the 2023 CHET Dream Big Competition. The competition is open to all Connecticut residents in grades K-12 and will run until November 6th this year. 
As part of the Dream Big competition, more than $450,000 in Chet 529 college savings plans will be awarded to students in grades K-12 along with technology prizes to schools across the state. Three students will be awarded $20,000 prizes, 24 will be awarded $6,000 and 336 will be awarded $500 prizes. Each school that has at least one student entry will be eligible for a random drawing where a total of 10 schools could win a technology prize each valued at $7,500. The Dream Big competition is an exciting and empowering way to help Connecticut kids and their families build a better future and prepare for future education, said Treasurer Russell. This year's competition theme aims to inspire students by asking younger students to answer a question about improving their communities and the lives of others. Older students will be asked to describe a lesson they've learned and how it will influence their future. For details about the competition and entry process, visit ChetDreamBig.com. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at Connecticut-East.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East this week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East this week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott Smith. Thank you for listening. 